Hello, and welcome to the Intentional Man Club podcast. I'm your host, Joel Collins, a fellow dad, husband, and dude just trying to get a little better every day. I'm all about that 1% improvement. So hey, if that's you too, this show is for you. We're having conversations with other guys, dads, husbands about life, some fun stuff, and the hard stuff too. Because I don't know about you, but it seems like we don't often talk about that stuff enough. And before you know it, things start to fall apart. And I don't want that to happen. So we're here having some fun and hopefully learning from each other along the way. Our show is sponsored by the Intentional Man Club, a monthly membership where we go deep into the areas of manhood, marriage, and fatherhood. You may ask, how do you do that? Well, I'll tell you. We send out monthly packages that include a book study and one or two extra items that are either something cool and fun or support our monthly challenge. These challenges are designed to help you move the needle towards intentional growth in your life. And don't worry, our online community is there to support and encourage you along the way. We'd love for you to join us. After all, we're just guys helping guys, iron sharpening iron. So go to intentionalman.club to sign up. That's intentionalman.club, not .com. And we'll see you there. Okay, today's guest is my very good friend and my pastor, Ben Wendell. I've known Ben for, man, it must be like 15 or 16 years now. We've worked at two different churches together, and while I'm not a full-time church staffer anymore, I still count myself lucky he's my pastor. We've been in life group together, an overseas missions trip to Haiti, and through countless church programs and events together. He's been known to give himself homeschool high fives, find the best deals on eBay, and fix just about anything. And in this episode, we'll talk about some of the biggest areas he sees men struggling with today, how he deals with stress, and you'll hear the story of how he had to ask his wife's dad's permission to marry his daughter. It's a funny story. You'll hear things he's struggling with and what he feels he's doing right. I promise you, lean in today and you're going to learn some stuff. So without any further ado, enjoy my conversation with my friend, Ben. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who your people are, your family, and uh, a little bit about what you do. Uh, yeah, my name's Ben. Um, I have three children, uh, 14, 12, and uh, my daughter is turning 10. And uh, we're really excited about that. Um, she's having a pony party, <laughs> which is weird, not because there's pony involves, involved, but like the first 20 minutes of the party is them decorating the pony. So like they braid its hair or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be the most manly thing I've ever done. Wow. That's uh, awesome. So, and Malika is my wife. Uh, we've been married for, this will be our 18th year. And um, we've been together for, um, I lied. Is it? No, this is our 15th year. What am I talking about? Really? Um, yeah, right? When did y'all get married? What year? Uh, 2000 and... I don't know. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that little uh, segment right there is going to get cut out for a social clip. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Let me think now. I don't remember. I know the date, 731. I asked somebody so, else on a podcast about their kid's age and they gave me all the ages and they're like, don't ask me the years though. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, so guess what? What? It's, it's been 18 years. Eight, okay. So you were married in Oh five. Uh, yeah. All right. We were married in the same year. Yeah. So I was, I was 20 when we got married. Okay. Yeah. So Malik is my wife. We've been married for 18 years. Uh, we met each other when we were 
were 14, didn't start dating until we were 17. Um, a lot of exciting times together. Uh, been, uh, we lived in uh, three different states. We've lived in eight different houses. And um, we're in Franklin, North Carolina now by way of Miami, Florida. And um, loving life. I serve as a lead pastor at Discover Church. And um, Malika is on staff there as her connections coordinator. And she's also super hot. So that helps too. <laughs> awesome. So Ben and I know each other um, since, I guess, about uh, 06, 07. Um, so several years. And um, gotten the privil- had the privilege of serving together with him at church, at different churches in South Florida and here. Um, so I consider him a really good friend. And uh, I want to start off uh, first question right away uh, as a man of the cloth. That's a saying, right? Like <laughs> priestly guy, uh, pastor, yeah. if you will, um, with all the counseling that you do, um, let me get a little deep really quick here. What would you say are um, some of the maybe top three struggles that you see men deal with? Men deal with, honestly, is top three struggles. Pornography is still a really big thing. Mm. Um, and every man deals with it. And it's something that's been normalized in our society. And I don't think that uh, men realize what kind of a toll that has on their spouse Mm. um, and on themselves. Uh, Another one is men struggling for their independence. Uh, It doesn't matter how long they've been married. They could have been married for 30 years. and they still like to keep secrets from their wife. Mm. They still like to have relationships that their wife doesn't know about. Mm. And, um, and a lot of the tension in their marriage is around boundaries. Mm. Um, and so it builds some kind of trust issues there. Um, and the third one, I would say for younger couples, uh, it's a matter of expectations. Uh, they just didn't know what to expect once they got married and um, and they never had anybody kind of walk them through what marriage looks like. And everyone has their own view of what marriage is supposed to look like. And the second it doesn't meet their expectations, they think something's wrong. Mm. And so, uh, so they, they think if it's wrong, then it's wrong. And so I shouldn't be married to this person. Mm. So, um, I think uh, going off of that one, I think um, when uh, when expectations are unmet, it creates so much tension and um, anger. It, it can develop anger in, in yourself, right? Because uh, you have these these things aren't going the way that you think they should go, right? Right. And so that just kind of leads to so many other problems then after that, right? Right. So it's it's expectations in every area of mm-hmm. the relationship. So. Uh, you might have been married 10 years by now and you thought you'd be better off financially. Mm. And and you leaned on each other that, to hope that you guys would be able to achieve your financial goals and you haven't got there and that's led to some frustration. Mm. Or um, you thought that maybe you would take more vacations or to see more of the world uh, by now and you haven't. Or um, you actually got married and you didn't actually voice these expectations out loud, but you thought they'd be a different person 10 years from now. Hmm. Uh, they, they haven't really changed. So that's not the problem. The problem is they're still the same. Hmm. 
and you've had some expectations that weren't really spoken about or walked through, or maybe you thought they'd grow into a better spiritual leader of your home Mm. and they haven't arisen to that mantle, or maybe you thought they would mature more, all these different kinds of expectations from every different Mm. category of relationships tend to, to fracture it a little bit. So if someone is um, maybe realizing that they're struggling with this now, what, what do you tell them to do? So I, I use, actually use a, a curriculum and uh, it's called Before You Say I Do. So a lot of the counseling I do, uh, I, I try very, very, very hard for marriage more than try to fix a problem later in marriage. Uh, and so what's interesting is even after people have been married for 10 years, I take them through a premarital curriculum mm-hmm. to talk about questions that in 10 years, nobody's ever asked them. Mm. Uh, so we'll go through really funny questions, interesting questions. So I'll say like, just when it comes to expectations, just soft questions, uh, where are you going to spend Christmas? Mm. And for new couples, uh, that is a tense question. Uh, cause she'll say, well, with my parents, obviously, and he'll say, no, at, at my grandma's, we, it's a tradition in my family. We're all there. And so there's like this tension or I say, uh, who's going to cook dinner. Mm. And so they talk about that. Like, well, I'll, we'll, we'll go halvesies. And then one night at out, we'll go out one night a week. We'll go out. I'll ask them who is the disciplinarian in their family. Uh, that, that builds expectations for them. Like, so their family history is what's building expectations for them. Mm. Who's a disciplinarian who paid the bills, like literally sat down and wrote checks out and mailed them. Um, you know, uh, who, who planned dates. And so it's like, you ask these questions that some fun ones, as far as financial expectations is when you ask a guy, how much a woman's haircut cost. <laughs> you know, most men spend like 12 bucks on a haircut. And most women spend $120 on a haircut. So, I mean, it depends on, I don't know. I've learned a lot about haircuts. So we talk about that. I mean, you can talk about like, what is an affordable mid-sized car? Mm. And some guys like $5,000 and his wife's like $38,000. And so it's these different things, just kind of helping them walk through expectations and have just rudimentary mm. conversations. Uh that help develop a deepness and an understanding for each other that are conversations that honestly you should have had before you got married. Mm. And I could go on a rant about how we've uh, replaced prepper, which is the sermon this week. I've heard some of your rants on Sundays. Yeah. Yeah. Which how we've replaced uh, preparation with a promise Mm. that we think as long as we make a promise, that'll cover up for the fact that I'm not really prepared for this. Mm. Um, so I can say I do and I will and not have to prepare. Um, and so that's a lot of what I do. One with couples who aren't married yet is help them prepare. And two for couples who've been married for a while is help them prepare for the rest of their marriage. Hmm. Um, so that's I would good. say the majority of the conversations that I have with married couples is preparation, hmm. no matter where they are in this stage of their marriage. So, uh, what, what is, um, going back to the first two things that you mentioned, uh, what's something that you tell then, uh, the guy in counseling, uh, who's dealing with pornography and or, uh, boundary issues, uh, with his wife. Uh, so for the guy that's dealing with pornography is to first, so for a lot of men, one, uh, they grew up with a dad 
that was the one that gave them their first pornographic magazine. Wow. Uh, they, they thought it was something healthy that men do. It builds a sex drive in them. Mm. Um, and again, it's normalized in culture. Uh, if you watch a sitcom with male roommates, one's almost always catching the other one watching porn, mm. or they're talking about their preferences when it comes to pornography. Um, and so it's been normalized in a lot of ways. So the biggest thing that, that a man has to do is admit that it's a problem. Mm. admit that he can't not look at a woman now and not overtly sexualize her mm. that I can't look at a man in a lot in the lobby and notice that he's undressing all the women in there with his eyes. Mm. Um, and then also the fact that his wife knows that for sexual gratification, he's got to fantasize about another woman. Mm. Like what does that do to your wife? It, it makes like your wife is your standard. Uh, if your wife, when you first got married, she had straight hair and now she wears it curly. Guess what? Uh, you like curly hair now. Um, <laughs> if, if she was a blonde when you got married, now she's going back to her natural colors and she's a brunette. Guess what? You're into brunettes. Mm -hmm. um, and we learn that from, again, as Christians from the Song of Solomon, uh, mm -hmm. that she was his standard. Uh, and so a lot of that is just kind of first recognizing as a man that you are wounding yourself that you are destroying your ability to relate with women in a non-sexual way. Uh, you've commoditized women, you've over-sexualized women. And then also you are eating away and tearing away at your relationship with your wife because you're telling her she doesn't measure up. Hmm. Um, and so I think the, the, obviously the, the first step is recognizing that it's not good for you and that, um, that it's, 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 destroying your relationships. And once they recognize that and they're ready for a change, um, then it's time for them to walk through maybe some addiction issues, mm. talk about coping, talk about triggers and different pathways. There are some men who a trigger, literally a trigger to begin browsing for pornography was when their wife pulled out of the driveway. When they mm. could hear her pull out of the gravel driveway, they pull up pornography on their phone. It was just like this natural trigger for them. Mm. And so to discover that and also coping. Uh, a lot of times depression is an issue. Anxiety is an issue. And because of the depressed, because of they have anxiety, one of the ways that they self-soothe self is through pornography, um, is to recognize that, find a healthier coping mechanism, mm. whether that's reading a book, uh, whether that's, I don't care, whether it's playing a video game, mm -hmm. something healthier than that. Yeah. Um, and then get some accountability. So, a shocking number of, of couples who I talk to who need marital counseling think it's totally normal that their spouse doesn't know the password of their phone. Mm. Uh, and somebody might be listening or watching this and think, yeah, that, that is normal. I'm entitled to my privacy. Well, I don't want my wife. I, I'm not trying to hide my browsing history from my wife. I'm mm -hmm. not trying to hide conversations from my wife. I literally have nothing to hide from my wife. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're not comfortable yet giving it to your, your wife, because you, you know that there are some things on there that will hurt her, give it to somebody mm -hmm. who's going to hold you accountable and get you to a place where you let your, you let your wife feel comfortable seeing that part of you. Um, what we talk about in premarital counseling is that when you get married, it's like you've inherited a mansion. And, and in this mansion, there are lots of rooms. And each of those rooms has something fun to offer. Like one room could have a pool table in it. One room could be an indoor pool. One room could be a karaoke, whatever. 
there's all these rooms, but all the doors are locked and you don't have the key. And the only way to get the key is to forge that key, is to spend the time building and shaping Hmm. and making that key so that you can finally open that door. And when you open that door, it could be really nasty and messy. So when I open a door to my heart to Malika and she steps in and is like, well, that is really gross and that's broken. Uh, She's not going to condemn me or react in a weird way. She's going to see it and say, I cannot wait to make this mess a garden. And and we're going to cultivate it and we're going to work it together. And then we're going to, again, own one of those rooms in that mansion because we worked on it together. But it takes time and it takes me opening up the door. And one of those doors is simply giving your wife the password for your cell phone. Um, so, I mean, those are, those are some of the big things that we talk about. And honestly, if you've got secrets, if you've got doors that you won't open, you simply do not have intimacy. Yeah. Um, and so those are some big things, concepts that we walk through. That's good stuff. Uh, secrecy kills intimacy. Um, Amen. So let me go on to the next question. So your oldest is a little ahead of mine. And also um, a boy and, and, my, and my, my oldest is a, a girl. So you're um, further ahead on a different side of the things. And I wanted to ask you, we were talking about this the other day, um, your teens and getting into dating and just kind of um, see where you guys are at with that. Um, um, what, what are you guys learning? Because I have two boys coming up too that will be you know teens eventually. What are you learning right now that, um, that I can use later and other guys can use, um, you know, in their own lives? Sure. So, um, and this, I mean, I'm, I'm just formalizing some of these ideas. Like <laughs> I literally had conversations with Malika this morning about like, what, 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 what does this mean? Um, <laughs> so first of all, like from a biblical perspective, uh, and again, this is good timing because it's all about the sermon this weekend, but uh, we have two interesting stories. We have Genesis 24, we have Genesis 29, and the Bible, if you're going to use that as your source of wisdom and truth, doesn't necessarily speak to dating relationships. Um, Isaac, uh, so Isaac and Rebecca. They're just giving Isaac people is, away there in the Bible. Yeah. Well, and Isaac is 40. Isaac is 40 when he first gets married. So, I mean, that's not a really good model. Um, but uh, But in these stories, we've got the story of Abraham and Sarah, you know, and later in the age, they have Isaac and uh, Sarah dies. And one of the reasons why Isaac doesn't have a wife yet is because they're living in the land of Canaan. It's their promised land. And Abraham doesn't want him marrying in any Canaanites because of their faith and because of their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so finally, he looks to his servant. He makes his servant make a vow uh, that he'll go to Abraham's homeland where there are people who believe uh, biblically what Abraham believes. Um, to find Isaac a wife. And so there's a lot of prayer involved. In fact, I think prayer is mentioned in Genesis 24. It's the longest chapter of Genesis, it's 67 chapters, but it's mentioned 16 times in Genesis 24. The servant prayers, prays a lot, travels all the way out this way, goes to a well, prays again and says, God, let these things happen if this is the right woman. A woman comes, the man isn't necessarily at first attracted to her beauty. Uh, He's attracted to her wisdom. He's attracted to her work ethic because not only does he bring, she bring him water, she feeds his camels as well. He goes to the house. It's not necessarily an arranged marriage because her brother, who is the man of the house because her dad died, 
asks her, do you want to go and marry this man, Isaac? And she says, I will. And so um, she, tra- she makes a journey back. They meet. Um, th- th- that's amazing story where she's riding up to the land and sees this handsome man off of the distance. She's like, who's that guy? And he's like, well, that's, that's my master. She puts her veil on. They get married right away. It says Isaac was comforted uh, after the loss of his mother. So I have to believe like in that moment, there's almost like tears in his eyes. Like this was so meaningful to, to him. They have a son, you know, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob in Genesis 29, it's time for him to find a wife. He doesn't send the servant out to help him. He goes alone. There is no mention of prayer in Genesis 29. Hmm. Uh, He gets to the well. And the first thing he sees is this hot girl. Hmm. And he's only attracted to her physically. He goes to her father, says, I want to marry this girl. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, I want to marry this girl. He says, I want to have to be crude. It says, he says, I want to go into her. So he, he wants to have sex with her. He says that to her dad <laughs> and, and her dad's like, uh, okay, so what do you, so, you know, like I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a deal maker. What are you going to do for my daughter? And, and it's Jacob who comes up with the idea. I'm going to work seven years to earn your daughter. And so he works for seven years, the night of their marriage, uh, uh, Laban actually doesn't give him, uh, um, uh, Rachel, who's the one he wants to marry, he swaps her place with her older sister um, and he marries her older sister and, and sleeps with her older sister. And is like, wait a second, this isn't Rachel. <laughs> um, and so he tells Laban, hey, what's the deal? And Laban says, well, you got to work another seven years uh, for, for Rachel. Uh, long story short, one story involves prayer and community. Mm. The other story is just one dude that's just physically attracted to a girl and there's no community involved. Hmm. Um, and so uh, I think, although that the Bible doesn't speak specifically to dating, in fact, the Bible only has three categories of relationships. It's family, neighbor, then spouse. It doesn't tell us how somebody moves from neighbor to our spouse. You can find principles in the Bible about relationships. So when it comes to Noah and dating, I want it to be community-based. Hmm. I, want, I want to know this girl. Um, I want them to go on group dates. I want to know what other people say about this girl. I want to know what uh, their teachers think about this girl. The same is with Noah. You know, I, I want I want this girl to be concerned about how other people um, describe Noah. Um, and so the other thing we had to talk about, uh, which is the biggest question, is maturity level. Mm. Like Noah's 14. Uh, it bugs me to death when parents let their kids start dating when they're 10. Because <laughs> like, what's the end game there? What yeah, is same. the end game that they uh, that they awaken sexual desires before they can act on them? Is the oh, end game yeah. just that, that they're going to date for ten years until they get married at twenty? And, and yeah. or is the end game like that they're going to just be heartbroken? Uh, I literally know fifteen year olds that are good friends with my son that have girls in town that they have to avoid because they decided to date them. Wow. Um, so it's, it's just weird. I don't want that for my son. And I want him to be mature enough to know that I believe biblically you date for marriage. That is hmm. the purpose of dating. And so we, we tossed around the idea of like, uh, Noah, you can't date until you're 15 or 16. Or uh, Noah, you can't date until you have a job. Or Noah, you can't date until you drive. And so what I see those things as isn't like a guarantee that when my son is 16 or 15 or 14, that he's going to be ready to date. Uh, I put obstacles in his way that determine his maturity. Mm. 
that's what we came up with last night. I feel really good about it. So, um, <laughs> so he's earning it. Yeah. So what determines his maturity is if he can hold and keep a job, I feel like he's mature enough to really begin to foster a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's mature enough to begin and finish a Bible reading plan with me, then he's mature enough, I think, to spiritually lead a relationship. Um, and so putting these little obstacles in his way to get there. And the other thing that we've asked him to do is if there's a girl that he wants to date, he has to ask her dad permission. Um, that's a mono e mono thing. And I feel like that shows maturity in some ways. And again, people are going to have to use their own wisdom. Um, and I don't, I don't want uh, a girl to feel like property that is negotiated with among the men in her life. But at the same time, I, I want that. I, I don't want that for her. This is something I want for my son. I want mm-hmm. my son to know that the person you're trying to date is somebody's daughter. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's all very, <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question. No, that's awesome. It's, it's I, heavy. Yeah, definitely. I'm really happy that you brought up um, the talking to the father part, because I, I know I've heard you talk about your own uh, story talking to Malika's dad. I wonder if you would um, share briefly that story because that's a good sure. good one too. So Malik and I have talked about this story and I love my father-in-law, but like whether or not this story was the reason we were going to make somebody ask to date Maylee mm-hmm. or make my sons ask to date somebody else's daughter, uh, I don't think really had any bearing on it. Mm. Uh, because honestly, I think it was just something fun that my father-in-law did because he liked to mess with people. <laughs> so uh, I'm not quite sure if it was his way of gauging someone's maturity level. I just think it was his way of of liking to clean guns in front of people that <laughs> wanted to date his daughter. So um, I went and um, asked Malika's dad if I could date her. And when I did, I was really shy about it. I waited until she was at work. I parked in the front yard. I was really hyping myself up. Malika actually called her mom and told, gave her mom a heads up and said, Ben's there to ask dad. And so I was really nervous. I went to knock on the door. And as I went to knock the door open, Malika's <laughs> mom was standing there like all happy. And I'm like, is, 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 is Phil here? And she's like, oh, he's working on something under the sink. And I was like, oh, well, I'll come back. She's like, no, now's a good time. And basically like, pulled me into the house. And so I walk into the kitchen and Phil's like under the sink. And uh, she's like, Phil? <laughs> Bill, Ben's here. And he's like cussing at the sink. And uh, he's like, what, what, what do you want? What do you want? And she's like, Ben's got a question to ask you. He's like, slides out from under the sink. He's like, what do you want? And I'm like, I want, I was going to ask you if I could date your daughter. And I said it just like that. And he was like, okay, we got to talk. And so he pulls, he gets out, he dusts his hand. He takes me into his workshop, which is attached to the kitchen. He looks at me and he goes, ask me again. And I was like, uh, hey, I would uh, really like to date your daughter. And he's like, awesome. He's like, Chris, which is Malika's mom. He's like, get the file, get the file, get the file. And so she goes to the filing cabinet and she pulls out a manila envelope that on the tab says dating Malika. And he grabs it. He's like, let's go get some food. And so you can tell he's like been planning for this moment. And so we go to a Jamaican chicken place and get some jerk chicken, which I'm not afraid of spicy food. I think he was trying to intimidate me with spicy food. So he's ordering like all the spicy stuff for us. He gets this like thimble full of like special lemonade. That's mm-hmm. basically like uh, it's supposed to kill you when you drink it. And so we drink it. And then when they bring out the jerk chicken, it's just a chicken that's chopped in half, like bone and all. 
and he's like describing to me the, the bone cutting knife and like how it works. And he knows the guy that works in the kitchen. <laughs> and then he uh, opens up the manila envelope and in it, there's an application to date his daughter. I'm pretty sure he got online and there's like fill in the blanks on there. Actually, I think they emailed me a copy not too long ago because I used it for a sermon illustration. Uh, and the fill in the blanks are, Joel, I want you to fill in the blank here. A woman's place is in the blank. My heart. That's exactly what I said. See, we are the same person. Um, and there's other things like, uh, where could I hide your body that no one would look? And you have to like an essay form, write a place where you could hide your body that no one would look. Um, have I ever been injured before? And there's, there's something that he could do that would like aggravate that injury. Um, <laughs> there's like all this stuff in there for application to date his daughter. But ultimately he said, yes. And Malik and I got engaged when we were 19 and we got married when we were 20. Mm. And uh, it's been honestly nothing but bliss. So it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Fun stories. Fun stories. I've heard that story a bunch of times that never gets old. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> All right. Uh, so moving on uh, for a second here. Um, think I want you to think about something. Uh, what, what are... Uh, you know, two or three things um, that you're doing right, right now, like today, uh, as relates to uh, manhood. And when I say manhood, I'm like, kind of leading yourself as a man. Um, So that uh, marriage and uh, fatherhood, would you say are like two or three things that I feel like I'm doing right? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very introspective. Um, So one of the things that I do is I date Malika regularly. Mm. Uh, uh, if what I is regularly on, for you, at least once a week. Okay. And it's not like we go to dinner. Uh, so where we live, we can do a lot of day trips while the kids are in school. Hmm. So we do that. So like today, Friday is typically my day off. I had a memorial service at church and I have this gangster podcast I got to do. <laughs> uh, and so I took Wednesday off this week and hmm. that was our date day. Um, I read books about husbandry which sounds like a farmer term i don't even know if that's the right word anyways yeah so i I read books about it um i study it uh just naturally think by part of of what it is that i do um malika and i both do marriage counseling and premarital counseling together Hmm. Uh, and what that does is it, it constantly brings us through those questions and those conversations um and we actually use the same curriculum that we used in our premarital counseling. Hmm. Um, so that's been really helpful for us. And, and I understand that that's not everybody's reality, but I would say at least once a year, go back through and, and make sure that you're still doing the things that you did at the beginning of your relationship now. Hmm. Um, so that's something that we do uh, that I think is really good for our relationship. We keep ourselves first. And we're not afraid to show a lot of PDA to our children and our <laughs> children know that. So like if our children, uh, maybe they've noticed that we haven't dated in a while, they'll bring it up. Oh. Uh, and it's probably because they want to play video games or something. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I, I think it's something like Noah right now is, is crushing on a girl hard and, and we keep trying to, to make sure he's making good choice. And he's like, don't worry. I know you guys have taught me well which makes me feel pretty good. Um, 
Another thing when it comes to Malika, I never, ever, ever uh, disparage Malika publicly. I never have in 17 years and I never will. What I mean by that is like when, when I'm with a bunch of men and they're all complaining about stuff their wives do, I don't jump in and be like, well, Malika does this thing and it's super annoying. Yeah. There might've been once or twice, but I've caught myself, but it's something that I've, uh, I think has made a difference in our marriage. Mm. If there's something that uh, upsets me about Malika's behavior, we talk about it. It does right. no good for me to talk about it to other people. Um trying to think i don't know we just really love each other and that's cool one of the things that we try to do we try to date weekly but we try to um get away from our kids once a month overnight which is really hard to do uh maybe that's once a year but uh once a year we try to get away from our kids for at least three nights um which is cool uh and we're able to do relationships we have and because our family's involved and they're committed to the success of our uh, relationship. So that's, that's very helpful. Uh, and then every five years, we take a pretty big trip. So we've been to St. John. Uh, we've been to some other places. And it's been, it's been cool. Awesome. So on the flip side of that, um, would you be willing to share um, one or two things that you, uh, you messed up on? Um, in the same three areas that you've learned from in the past? Um, yeah. I mean, so when it comes to, to our relationship, I think one of the, the key areas that, that I mess up on is I have a really hard time with intimacy. I have a really hard time uh, talking about my feelings <laughs> uh, and the way that I feel. Mm. Um, and so I, I internalize a lot of that and I feel responsible for how Malika feels. Mm. Um, so rather than letting her be responsible for her feelings, I feel responsible for them. And if she feels any way negatively, I almost take offense to it. Like I'm not doing my job mm. and that's called codependency. Mm. And so it wasn't just in my, re- my relationship with Malika. It was almost in every relationship. It's what led me to burnout as a pastor at a former church was just trying to people please mm. and, and feeling responsible for everyone else's feelings in the room. So I went through a 12 step program uh, with celebrate recovery for codependency. And that's made a really big difference. What, what does that, um, what does that look like um, uh, practically for someone who, who like codependency sounds like a uh, may sound like a weird word uh, to some people, but like, what does that look like practically uh, feeling responsible for everyone else's feelings? So I, I would, I would get like secondhand embarrassed. Uh, so it, it, it's weird. Like uh, we were just talking about it last night. Uh, you know, that redeeming love movie. Uh, yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. You've heard of it. I haven't, um, I haven't seen, is that, the, is that uh, out right okay. now? Yeah, it's out. I guess it's like, it's based off a Christian book that's okay. based off of um, the lady who wrote it. Essentially, it's an allegory for the book of Hosea. So okay. a man falls in love with a prostitute, um, but there's love scenes in it and stuff. And so we were watching the preview because Malik was about to see it. And some of her friends were like, I'm not comfortable bringing my teen daughter to see this. And so when we're watching the previews, there's like hot and heavy sex scenes in there. And that stuff makes me uncomfortable. It's like, <laughs> ew, it's too much. And um, 
or when somebody's doing something embarrassing or awkward, like it's really hard for me to watch The Office. Like when Michael, <laughs> like that episode of Scott's Tots. Yeah. Um, when he has to like, I, I, I feel the emotion. I, I, like when somebody's doing something embarrassing, I almost feel like I got to get up and I got to stop it. Um, and so when somebody comes up to me and asks me to do something like, hey, will you do this memorial service for my daughter? I don't want to tell them no, because I feel like I would be disappointing them. Mm -hmm. And even though that's their emotion that they're responsible for and not mine, uh, I feel like I got to say yes to everything. Mm. Uh, and, and it's also people who have codependency don't really have their own personality because when you walk into a room, because you want to please everyone, you can become whoever you feel everyone in the room needs. Mm. Uh, so my staff actually sees that as like a magic trick that I have uh, that I can relate to other people, but it's actually a skill that I gained through being codependent. Mm. So um, I can talk to like raging, like QAnon Republicans and be like, yeah, yeah, bro, what's up? And like, <laughs> be fine. Yeah. So I could talk to people on this side of the aisle and be like, yeah. And so my staff knows that I'll be having a meeting with somebody that disagrees with me wholesale and we'll meet together and we'll both walk out smiling. Uh, and the thing is because I'm, I'm able to relate to them by becoming the person that I think they need me to be in order to make them happy while also letting them down. <laughs> and so it's really weird, but it also bears a toll on you mm. because you fabricate passion. And mm. when you fabricate passion, it's the quickest way to be burnt out. Mm. I want to be excited because I feel like you're excited. So I want to be excited too. Um, and so it's, it's really weird. Or if somebody's on stage embarrassing themselves, I feel it too. Or, uh, if a wife and a husband are in premarital counseling or marital counseling with us and they're weeping and they're brokenhearted, I feel it right here. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, codependency is something that, I mean, you can chalk it up to people pleasing. You could chalk it up to, I can't live without you because I define my emotions and my worth by other people. Mm. Um, and so I had to do a lot of work, uh, just kind of becoming my own person mm. and being willing to let people down and being willing to let them uh, be responsible for their own feelings. Somebody who's codependent is that person who wakes up in the middle of the night because they feel like they said something wrong at a party the night before, mm. or they wake up in the middle of the night because they remembered something embarrassing they did in high school. Um, that's, that was basically what I was going through. Mm. Interesting. So, um, it, makes, it leads me to um, another question that I want to ask you, um, uh, talking about leading a church and, and all the different um, places that you have to step into with that. Um, how do you deal with stress in your life? Um, <laughs> I can imagine the stress there must be um, leading a church of any size anywhere, but um, you know, we're a pretty large church in a small town. Um, and um, I'm just curious. Um, like, what are some things that you do to deal with stress that uh, some other people listening uh, might be able to um, grab onto? So there's a lot of things uh, I've learned when it comes to stress and rest coming out of burnout. Mm. Um, and so some of those things is like paying attention to your rhythms. Um, so you've got a circadian rhythm, which is a 24-hour rhythm. I want to try to draw. There we go. 24-hour rhythm. And inside of a circadian rhythm, there's other rhythms 
Mm-hmm. And I forget what those rhythms are called. Um, and so a lot of us, we see our day, which I used to, as a linear line that I start here and over the day, my energy level goes down. So if I start here and my energy level goes down and I have coffee and it comes up and it starts to go and I'll, and I'll have coffee again and it starts to go back down. But understanding the rhythms in your body is really important to me. So um, everyone has a peak and their energy level around 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, your body begins processing a bowel movement at, at about 6 a.m. That's just what your body does. Your body actually shuts off its bowel movements at 11 p.m. Oh. At, five, at 5 p.m. is when you're the most flexible. Um, it's all very weird. There's a whole lot of scientific study I've done on this, and it's very biblical. Um, uh, trainers know this. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, they'll have you train, push, 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 but then they'll have you do an equal amount of rest. Mm-hmm. And then train and push, 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 and then an equal amount of rest. Uh, the Japanese did a study on these small rhythms, and there's a part where two rhythms intersect. That's where your mental capacity is at its lowest and your physical capacity is at its lowest, and that's at 2 p.m. And that's why I like to take a nap every day at 2 p.m., <laughs> um, uh, about a 20-minute nap, my power nap. Uh, the Japanese actually call that the dead hour. Uh, <laughs> that's why, honestly, people in Europe have tea every day at 2 p.m. Um, that's why... Yeah, a lot of stuff happens at 2 p.m. So I have to know if I'm going to be scheduling a meeting that I'm going to be my sharpest at 10 Mm a.m. I've recently discovered that uh, when it comes to sermon writing that I write best around 8 or 9 a.m. And uh, so there's all these different things you got to know about that as far as dealing with stress. And you also got to recognize it in yourself and take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, So again, as somebody who's codependent, like I give and I give and I give and I give. And, and it almost feels weird to say I need a break because I don't want some, I don't want people to think that I'm the kind of person that needs a break. Is that weird? Yeah. Uh, so I want I want them to think that I'm I'm driven and I'm focused and I know what I'm doing and so I'm not going to take a break. Um, there's been small things again that I've learned. One uh, I haven't done recently, but it's actually really refreshing. A pastor friend of mine told me about it, and it's going to sound super new agey, but <laughs> really? it is. No, it's oh. taking your shoes off, your socks off, and walking barefoot in the grass. Okay, being grounded. Yes, exactly. And, um, and oddly, when you, when you work into those rhythms throughout your day, periods of rest, it helps with stress. And I'll be total, totally honest with you. Um, this past week was really stressful for me. Um, there was... There was something deep happening in our church that needed to be uprooted. Mm. Uh, and it was a decision that needed to be made immediately. And it affected a lot of people. Mm. Uh, and the codependent in me who doesn't like to make people unhappy was stressing out about that decision. Mm. Uh, it was a deeply spiritual decision. So it affected me spiritually, affected me emotionally. It affected me physically because I was losing sleep. There'd be mm. people texting me the night before saying, hey, can we meet the next day? Uh, knowing that that was going to be an unfun meeting uh, Mm. because they were upset about the decision that I've made uh, really affected me in a lot of ways. And so I had good people around me who actually recognized that stress before I did. I wasn't doing a good job of hiding it. Mm. And um, it allowed me to Should you hide stress? Um, You shouldn't. Um, But when when you're codependent and you begin to slip, you do. Yeah. Um, I would say... 
get to the point when it comes to your stress. And I understand that not all of us have the ability that I have. Uh, not all of us, like if you're working retail, you can't be like, hey, I'm just going to go walk barefoot for a second. I'll be right back. Um, but again, work those rhythms in. Make sure you're actually resting when you can rest and being on your phone, all the studies that have to do with blue light and stuff like that, that is not a rest. Mm-hmm. So like find the time to break away. And mm-hmm. so for me, I'm an introvert. Um, and so I'm a high functioning introvert, but still my battery is charged when I'm alone. Mm-hmm. And so Malika knows this about me. My staff knows this about me. When Malika sees the stress in my face, she says, why don't you just take some time to go be alone? My staff does the same thing. Um, when I showed up to Monday staff meeting, looking stressed, uh, they made some phone calls and got my diet worked out, um, which is really cool. Um, and so like diet's important. I know that exercise is important. I play hockey on a regular basis and, uh, so we hadn't been able to get enough people together to play hockey. So it wasn't happening. And I wasn't getting any physical exercise because I was busy and maybe stressed. I wasn't eating right. Mm. Um, and so all those things combined, uh, it helps to have people in your life who can recognize that in you, even when you don't. Mm. And then, but then also have done the work ahead of time to know exactly what you need to do, what glass you need to break mm. um, in order to, to make that happen. So start doing those studies now is what I would say. As far as like what you do to fill yourself up, do that yeah. often. Yeah. Like for me, I want to go for a motorcycle ride with Joel up a mountain. <laughs> Let's go. And that would be that would be very nice. Let's go. That's awesome. Uh, being self-aware is what I'm hearing you say. Um, knowing knowing your triggers, knowing what recharges you, um, assessing your life, and and then building those things into it, huh? Yeah. And I would say that also ties into what we're talking about early. What are your coping mechanisms? Yeah. Because there's there's some healthy ones. I mean, you have to cope. You have to self-soothe in some ways. So what's the healthy coping mechanism that you have? And for a lot of people, that's going for a run. But for others, it's something that's unhealthy. So knowing what what you need to rest, what you do to cope, and what and what and how to recognize stress in your life. Yeah. I think are are all part of being self-aware. Yeah, that's awesome. Good stuff. Uh, just a couple questions here left. Um, okay, this is my Doc Brown question. Say oh, you met up with Doc Brown and you're able to send yourself three letters uh, to your past self. Oh, boy. What would you, what would you write yourself when you were uh, 18? What would you send yourself, 18 year old Ben? So, now so it sounds like a- this is. It sounds like this is going to lead into the second one because the second one's on marriage and you got married so young. Is this about the same age? What did yeah. You say? Okay. Yeah. So one of the things is that we ask in premarital counseling to kind of reveal family history is, did you like yourself when you were 10? Did you like yourself when you were 14? Did you like yourself when you were 18? So it's at 18, I liked myself. Um, I had some time there in my teen years of, really deep depression and even suicidal thoughts. Mm. But at 18, I liked myself. I would say I was a little discouraged with how slow life was going. Um, I mean, there was this girl that I loved. I had plans for marriage. Um, uh, I, I was called into ministry, but those doors weren't opening. Mm. Um, and so if I were going to write myself at 18, I would tell myself, dude, hang on because you have underestimated 
how God will use you and how incredible life's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess that's what I would write myself. But at 18, it was like, everything was like really coming together for me. So awesome. What would you uh, write yourself a month after you and Malika were married? A month after Malika and I were married. Honeymoon's over and life is, you know, happening. Probably the same thing. Cause <laughs> everything about our marriage a month in, uh, was really coming together and it was just really like the fulfillment of everything we had hoped for, except for the fact we were dirt broke and it seemed like no opportunities were opening up. Mm. So, um, I think I would just say, hang in there. You have each other. That's what matters. God's going to take care of the rest. Mm. Last letter, third letter that you get to send back with doc Brown. What would you tell, um, Ben the week before Noah was born? I would say buy Bitcoin. <laughs> it can't be, uh, can't be uh, stock options. <laughs> um, a week before Noah was born, I would say this is a hard one. Because we had our kids so young. Noah was born when I was 23. And I was still a child. Hmm. Sometimes I'm envious of people who have kids later in life because I feel like they're so much better equipped. I mean, when Noah was born... I was still a codependent. I was still burnt out. I was still going nuts. I had no idea how to be a father. I thought it would just be enough to be cool. Mm. And so I, I guess what I would write myself a week before Noah was born was get ready to do some work on you. Mm. I know that you've got plans for your son. I know it's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. But those plans are totally contingent on who you become. Mm. Uh, that's what I think I would have sent to myself. Awesome. Very cool answers. Um, what is something that you want to tell every dude out there? Um, every man uh, might be watching or listening to this. What's something that you want them to know uh, relates to leading themselves um, and or their marriage or their kids? I would say do something. Um, that's, I mean, that's pretty much I think that would be the mantra. Just do something. Do something. Um, yeah. So like when it comes to codependency, when it comes to these things, all the heavy stuff we've talked about, uh, when it comes to your marriage, don't just say, I'd like it to get better. Mm. You got to do something about it. Mm. And the only thing that you're responsible for is who you are becoming. Mm. Don't worry about the, the habits or things that you wish your wife would do better. Um, don't worry about... Um, your even your kids' homework so much uh, as you worry about who you are becoming because that's going to make the difference in every relationship. And it seems selfish, um, but it's but it's really true. So focus on being, being who God's called you to be, being the husband that you can be, being the father that you can be, and stop trying to do without being first. Um, so that's what I would do. I think a lot of the stuff I was doing as a, as a father and as a husband was faking it until I make it. Mm. And then when I focused on actually being those things, uh, that that's probably what made the biggest difference mm. for me. So I guess that's the thing. Do something, mm. read the book, schedule the first date, um, have, have the talk with your son or your daughter, <laughs> uh, do something. Um, 
start a Bible plan with your family. When you gather your kids together, really freak them out and begin when you do your family prayer time. This is what we did last night. I thought it would freak out the kids more than it did. <laughs> but but pray for their spouses. Hmm. Um, say, Father, I, I pray for Maylie's spouse. I pray for him right now that you would bless him and keep him. And if he's struggling, God, that you would comfort him right now. Hmm. And pray for your kids' spouses and just see what happens. And I think that as you do that, it helps you almost become Mm. a better spouse because it's what you would hope for for your children mm. but do something i guess is all i'm saying <laughs> that's awesome uh i like how you tied that into um who you are and your identity and your identity uh I heard recently is really what you do uh that makes up who you are and if you're not if you're not who you want to be you can change that by becoming by doing the things that it takes to get to that person that you want to be. Is, is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Um, and again, uh, you might see the task and it seems super daunting. Um, and not to keep going back to this, but when you do a 12 step study, it's like six months worth of work mm. or longer. Uh, I think it's, it's longer. It could be 18 months. Mm. And you're looking at that going, this will never end. I'm going to have so many meetings. I got to fill out this journal about my thoughts and my feelings. <laughs> Uh, instead of thinking about like, this is going to take five years, think about, and f- you're going to be five years older anyways, when you want to be five years older and, and better. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but go at your own pace. Mm. Don't stress out about the work, just do the work. Mm. And then before you know it, uh, it's kind of like compounding interest. Mm. Um, you'll have improved in more ways than you thought you would have. Mm. And again, not to keep, this isn't about codependency, but like something like codependency affects more relationships than you thought it did. Mm. So awesome. uh, just taking, taking a small step can make a big difference. Yeah. Lots of small steps. All right. Last question. Um, and you were leading right into this, which I love. So what is the, uh, our podcast is called the intentional man club podcast. What does being intentional mean to you? Oh, man. Uh, I guess being intentional to me is being proactive. Mm. I I don't want to be reactive. I don't want to wait until there's a problem in my marriage to do something about it. I don't want to wait until uh, I feel like I don't know my children anymore to do something about it. So I I don't want to wait until things start falling apart financially before I get my stuff together and make a budget Mm. for my family. And I guess if I were to sum it up in one phrase, it's what Craig Rochelle said. When he said, everyone gets some gets somewhere, but few people get somewhere on purpose. Mm-hmm. And so I want to be intentional about where my relationships end up and where my family ends up. I want to get there on purpose. Awesome. Love so. it. Well, Ben, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for uh, the conversation and, and sharing your nuggets of wisdom with us. Uh, I want to affirm and just uh, honor you and what you mean to my life, uh, my family's life, and how you show up every single day for um, for not not just your family, but for um, the church and your work and our town. And so thank you so much for all of that and for everything that you do and for your friendship. And um, man, love you, buddy. Thanks for being on the love show. Love you too. It's my honor. Hey, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you can think of anyone, someone who might benefit from listening to it, please do go ahead and share or forward them the link of this episode. And last thing, 
We are a new podcast and would love for you to help us get the word out. Podcast reviews go a long way in helping us do this. Please leave us a nice review wherever you listen to your podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay, till next time, thanks and have a great day. Thank you.